Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. You're listening to Upfront. I'm Brian edwards Teekert, and we're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Since there is a, a relatively manageable amount of headline news surrounding COVID-19, I was hoping to open this week by asking you to help me understand something that happens on Twitter, which is periodically a virologist pops up, presents some data from genomic sequencing of wastewater, and says that there is somewhere a cryptic lineage of covid that they believe to be an infection in one person quite genetically distinct from what seems to be moving through the population as a whole. Uh, the most recent example of this would be a virologist, a molecular biologist named Mark Johnson, who says he's identified what looks like the signature of one person with a chronic infection in Columbus, who also spends some time uh, pooping in another city in Ohio called Washington Courthouse. Um, I, I, I honestly don't know what to make of this. And I was wondering if you could start by like just defining what a cryptic lineage is for us. Well, cryptic means hidden. And so when we say a cryptic lineage, what it means is it's something that's been hidden that, that is we couldn't see before. So it would represent something new or different that we hadn't seen. So when somebody says cryptic lineage, they're saying that this is something that's different than we've seen before. Um, cryptic lineages actually are occurring all the time. That is, that we do see this virus spinning off lots and lots of different forms of itself, the vast majority of which are not successful and can't either reproduce well enough to compete or can't um, uh, transmit in other ways well enough to compete. So it just they just die off. And that's the vast majority of experiments this virus does. But occasionally you will see a new lineage that is able to compete, at least compete to some degree, and you'll find it in the wastewater. What I think this, I haven't seen what you're reporting to because frankly, I've stopped looking at Twitter. Um, but Fair what enough. I think you've, um, you're, the author is referring to is that this is a lineage that has popped up and that he or she has seen consistently over at least some period of time in one geographic area, suggesting that maybe there is an individual who is infected with this virus and is continuously shedding it. For example, in people who are severely immunocompromised, if they get COVID, 
um, they may not be able to get rid of the virus. They may become asymptomatic, but they may not be able to get rid of the virus for a long, long period of time and continue to excrete it. And so what that, and I'm just trying to read tea leaves here, Brian, but what, what you're, mm-hmm. what you read to me suggests that that's what that author is suggesting the possibility of. That is, there's somebody who may be continuously secreting or excreting a lineage of this virus that is unique, and it, that's what is being found in the wastewater. Yes. In, in fact, if I'm reading it correctly, and again, it's Twitter, a medium built <laughs> to present information absent context. Uh, he's suggesting this person's been secreting it for two years. I, I guess it would also suggest the possibility of the virus um, mutating in such a way that it is both extremely hard to transmit from one person to another, but also extremely hard to clear an established infection. So it kind of stays contained, but the person containing it stays infected. Right. Now, it's important to emphasize that we don't see this in people who have a normal immune system. Um, People who are healthy otherwise and have a normal immune system, they're not going to continue to shed this virus for long periods of time. As a matter of fact, it really sheds for a relatively short period of time. It's in people who don't have the defenses to fight this virus or fight it adequately to completely get rid of it, where you can see people uh, excreting this virus for long periods of time. All right. Um, that thank thank you for indulging my social media inspired curiosity, Doctor Schwartzberg. Uh, our our guest is Doctor John Schwartzberg, clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health, uh, and he is here to answer. Your questions as well as mine, 1-800-958-9008. If you've got a question about COVID, again, that's 1-800-958-9008. Dr. Schwartzberg, I wanted to start with the inbox. We got a letter last night from David, who did not mention what city he's in, but is asking on behalf of a friend who is planning to attend a high-risk event. he describes this as an indoor dance workshop with several hundred participants who will mostly not be masking and then planning afterwards to visit a medically vulnerable person, a relative who is over 70. And David asks on behalf of his friend how long they should schedule between the two events to factor in the incubation period of the virus uh, and make sure that they are in the clear. Got it. Well, David's friend uh, is correct. That is, he's uh, participating in a high-risk event. Indoors is the critical word. Lots of people is another critical phrase. So this is a high-risk event for him. When I say high-risk, it's a high-risk for getting infected. And it's a high risk for if you get infected, assuming David's friend is otherwise healthy, for getting sick. Um, It's probably like everything with COVID right now. The good news is that it's a low risk for getting so seriously ill you wind up in the hospital and die, assuming that David's friend is up to date with all of his his or her immunizations. So the friend going there, high risk for getting infected. Question is... Next step is to visit a medically vulnerable person, and how long should they wait to assure that that high-risk event didn't, couldn't lead to that chain carrying over to the medically vulnerable person? And the answer to that exactly. is 
Yeah, the answer is really this the Omicron and all of its subvariants, and that's all that's circulating right now, um, has a pretty short incubation period. That is between the time you get infected and the time you become symptomatic or start to shed the virus. It could be one day, two day, three day. Uh, typically, it's not beyond five days. Occasionally, it's a little longer. So if, if they waited five days and then did a rapid test um, on day five and it was negative by day six, the chances of that person shedding the virus uh, and exposing the vulnerable person is very, very low. So that's, I think, a strategy I would do would be to test at a minimum on uh, after day five, test yourself. If it's negative and you're asymptomatic, you're probably home free. Um, you could test on day three and day five just to have a little more assurance. Um, you could certainly, to add just another layer of safety, for between day five and day 10 after the high-risk event party or event um, wear a good mask in the 95K and 95 and 94 uh, through day 10. That would add another layer of safety. So those are the things that they could do. So minimum of five days testing negative day six, you're probably home free. Adding another layer of safety could be to wear a good mask for the next five days. Um, I want to be clear on the math here when we start counting days. Uh, so, so David's friend's last day on which the friend could have been exposed, the last day of, of this dance conference, that would be day zero? That's day zero. That's right. So the day after that is day one. Got it. Okay. Hopefully that is helpful, David. Uh, COVID questions, 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls, 1-800-958-9008. Also wanted to inject uh, this update from Michael, no city mentioned, to our discussion last week about the implications of Paxlovid getting uh, full non-emergency authorization from the FDA. Michael tried to get a, a prescription filled ahead of some travel uh, in case he got sick on the road. His doctor was willing to oblige him, but the pharmacy, which was a safe way, was not, he says, because, quote, the only supply of drug they had was still labeled as the, well, his word is experimental, and paid for by the U.S. government supply. Um, I got it from another pharmacy. Uh, that was an interesting roadblock I had not anticipated that uh, your doctor might oblige you with the prescription, but the pharmacy might not be able to follow through if you're not actually sick. Interesting roadblock. Um, welcome to um, the bureaucracy. Um, I understand what the Safeway pharmacist was saying. They, they have a supply, but it's only under emergency use authorization. That's how they got it. Um, at least I think I understand. I I'm not sure why they couldn't um, just use the product now that it uh, has full FDA approval. But um, that's what they're saying, and there may be some rules for the pharmacy that any emergency use authorization, Paxlovid, can't be used. Um, it has to be the next batch that comes out after FDA approval. That seems like an odd bureaucratic stumbling block, and um, maybe that's not true. That is, maybe there's some confusion on the um, basis of the pharmacist. You know, th this just brings up a broader issue, and that is that whenever there's a big change uh, in 
drugs or medical procedures or really just about anything, um, there's a lag time between when the change occurs and when you see the change affected. And I think that's what we're going to see with uh, Paxlovid for a little while until all the pharmacies get their stories straight. Right. There's the rules and there's the rules as they are understood by the people whose job it is to execute them. Right. Uh, I recall about three months ago uh, calling a prescription in for um, someone who had documented COVID and the pharmacist uh, at a pharmacy that I use, the pharmacist said, I, I can only receive it electronically. I can't receive it by phone. And I said, I've been calling this prescription in for many times. He said, well, you'll have to find a different pharmacist. I, I cannot do that for you. And so I found a, a different pharmacist uh, at the same chain, but another store, and they were happy to do that. So whenever there's something new, there's confusion. Fair enough. All right. Um, one more from the inbox. This comes from Sonia, who did not mention a city. She writes, I understand that having had COVID means you've had the equivalent of a vaccination. Does this immunity last as long, longer, or for less time than the vaccine itself? Yeah, that's a really important question that Sonia is raising. And the answer is that we know that having had COVID gives you very good immunity. Uh, we also know that that immunity wanes. There's a debate about whether it wanes less fast, less quickly than the immunity from the vaccine. There's some data that suggests it gives you protection longer and perhaps more robustly. Um, but there's other data that suggests that it's not much different than the vaccine. Um, certainly, if it gives you better immunity than the vaccine, it, it's not a good argument to go out and get COVID to get protected. But um, the ideal immunity that we have is having been infected with the virus and getting vaccinated. That's what we call hybrid, <clears throat> excuse me, hybrid immunity. And that appears to be the most robust. Still, even with hybrid immunity, it's not perfect. And we've seen lots and lots of people come down with one, excuse me, two, three, four episodes of COVID. So um, it's good immunity. Yes, I would consider it certainly equivalent to being vaccinated. Whether it's a little better or not is sort of a interesting and important point. But um, it doesn't really change anybody's strategies in terms of protecting themselves. Also, I think probably worth pointing out that there's not like just one thing that is immunity. The the vaccines lead to a brief but intense surge in antibody production, which is the thing you might hope to prevent you from getting sick in the first place. And there's a, a more enduring uh, T cell immunity, which is what you hope keeps you from getting severely ill if you are infected. Uh, you, you can't just measure one thing and call it immunity. Right. You know, that, that's such an important point, Brian. The, it's easy for us to measure antibodies. And that is what wanes. They wane pretty quickly, two, three months after vaccine, even after uh, infection. They're, they're waning. T-cell immunity is, as you were saying, a longer-term immunity. But we don't have 
readily available, uh, commercially available tests that we can just use easily to determine one's T-cell immunity. But it's the T-cell immunity that once we are infected, uh, protects, the vi- protects us from having that virus go wild in our bodies. It's protecting us against the hospitalization and death. You know, there's just data that came out uh, in the last few days showing that roughly 97% of Americans today, have, uh, today over age 16, have antibodies to COVID. Whether those antibodies came from infection or vaccine is not differentiated. But at least 97% of Americans over 16 have some degree of protection. And some of that protection is T-cell immunity. And that's why we're seeing an all-time low in hospitalizations right now from COVID. Uh, This last two-week measurement period showed an all-time low of the number of people hospitalized with COVID. So um, this high degree of immunity, this immunity wall that people call it, is really serving its purpose in terms of protecting us from getting really sick and dying. That's really good news. The other thing that study showed was that um, roughly about 50% of Americans uh, have immunologic evidence of previously being infected. And it may be, the number may be higher than that, but that was this one particular study. It was looking at blood donors, so it's a selected group. Um, but an awful lot of people, at least half of the population, I guess, I would guess probably a larger number than that, have been infected with COVID since it began three and a half years ago. All right. Uh, if you want to send in your question via email for one of Dr. Schwartzberg's segments, it's upfront at kpfa.org. For the rest of this morning, we will go to the phone lines at 1-800-958-9008, starting with Leslie and Martinez. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, and thank you um, both for your many months of service on this. My question is, um, is there an update on the fall vaccine, and um, what do we know about that? Sure. Uh, There will be an update. It will occur in the middle of this month. The FDA is meeting, I think it's on the 15th. I'm not sure about that date. I think it may be a week from this Thursday. And that's when we expect that we're going to hear an announcement about the composition of the fall vaccine. Now, the WHO a couple of weeks ago came out and recommended that the vaccine for the next iteration of a vaccine should be a vaccine that uh, is directed solely against XBB. XBB is the current subvariant of Omicron that is causing essentially all the disease essentially everywhere. Um, there are a few other subvariants that are circulating, but XBB and its relatives, its close relatives, is really the gorilla in the room. And it's anticipated to be that in the fall. And that's why the uh, WHO came out with that recommendation. Now I'll just go on to the guessing line. And um, I guess that the FDA is going to probably recommend an XBB vaccine. And this second aspect to that is, as you recall, the most recent booster uh, vaccine is a bivalent vaccine, meaning it contained the ancestral strain and it contained uh, one of these uh, subvariants of Omicron. My guess is that the FDA is going to approve just a monovalent strain 
containing XBB. But that's purely a guess. So um, a week from Thursday, I believe, is when they'll be meeting, so we should know by a week from Friday. And we'll, we'll debrief that here. Uh, for now, let's go to the mountains, or at least the foothills. Frank is on the line in Grass Valley. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for the show. Hey, uh, my question is, my wife has some specific uh, conditions. Uh, she has brain AVM, carbononas. Uh, she's had gut biome damage from um, surgeries and um, um, antibiotic uses over the years and chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue, multiple chemical sensitivity. And the question is, are there any research on vaxxed Omicron, Omicron a long COVID with these types of conditions? Hi, Frank. Um, Hi, Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you. Of course. Um, I don't know of any specific research for the four entities that you're talking about those are four things that really make your wife struggle i'm sorry although hopefully the avm is um is not um so i don't know specific research about that with long COVID. the risk factors for developing long COVID, um there are 10 or 12 things that are associated with a, a higher risk of getting long COVID, and they're not on that risk. I'm looking or thinking particularly about the chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, mm. And certainly the manifestations of chronic fatigue syndrome overlap with the manifestations we see, a common manifestation we see with uh, long COVID. That is this prolonged either exertional fatigue or just chronic fatigue. So there's a, clearly an overlap there, and there's been a tremendous interest uh, by scientists to try to understand whether there's some commonality in terms of the cause of the chronic fatigue syndrome that we've been seeing for years in people and the chronic fatigue that we're seeing as a manifestation of long COVID, one of the most common manifestations of it. But that's about as far as I can take us on that journey of trying to understand that, Frank. Um, so I guess my general comment would be that anybody who has chronic health issues um, should be more, should be, I would recommend being extra careful to try to not get infected with COVID so that they're at least not adding on another chronic problem to their already other chronic problems. Frank, good luck with that situation. I'm sorry for what she's going through. Dr. Schwartzberg, that's all the time we're going to have this week. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. 
And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.